Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm the host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Virginia University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Ferris Rashad Cronfley and Tim Vollmer about their paper, A Brief Assessment to Identify Sensitivity to a Conversational Partner's Interest. Ferris is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Florida's Center for Autism and Related Disabilities and coordinator for the Behavior Analysis Research Clinic's School Consultation Program. And Tim is a professor and associate chair of psychology at the University of Florida. He has also served as the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, and he is a fellow of the Association for Behavior Analysis International. I really enjoyed learning about this fascinating topic from Ferris and Tim. I think it was a really interesting conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ferris Rashad Cronfley and Tim Vollmer. Hello, Ferris and Tim. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited to have you both on the show today to talk about your paper, A Brief Assessment to Identify Sensitivity to a Conversational Partner's Interest. Before we jump into the topic at hand, we always like to learn a little bit about our guests. And so would each of you mind talking a little bit about your, your current role? What got you maybe interested in behavior analysis or led you to that role? And then why you're interested in this research topic in particular? Like, you know, why spend the time to do this study and write this paper? Sure. Uh, so... I uh, went to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County um, from Maryland. And there I was introduced to behavior analysis by um, Dr. Sung Kong, one of his classes. And uh, he introduced me to the Kennedy Krieger Institute and some of the work they were doing there. Um, and so after I graduated with my bachelor's, I applied to UMBC's um, master's program while working concurrently at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. And um, I just kind of fell in love with the science and the kind of work we were doing. It was very interesting. It was very um, unique. Uh, we actually saw progress and results, which was um, very reinforcing uh, to see uh, actual differences being made. Um, and from there, I did a brief stint in, um, Omaha, Nebraska at the Monroe Meyer Institute before being accepted into Tim's lab in 2015 at uh, UF. And so my background is primarily assessment and treatment of problem behavior. That's all I really knew until I came to work with Tim 
Uh, and then from here, I was kind of exposed to a lot of other different types of things like classroom management, um, some early intervention work. Uh, we, we did all types of really cool and interesting things. Um, and the reason I kind of started doing this type of work was uh, no one else was doing it. And we were just getting a lot of referrals through the clinic that Tim had developed here. Um, and so I just said yes. And I started taking in these um, individuals who were looking for help developing friendships and relationships in general. Um, they were struggling in school. Um, school became very aversive. They didn't have friends, some bullying going on. So uh, that's kind of how that started for me anyway. And then I just kind of fell in love working with this population. Um, in addition to the fact that I saw there was a uh, deficit in the type, this type of support in, in our community here. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. When you went to UMBC as an undergrad, did you have any idea of what behavior analysis was or any idea that that program is quite behavioral? Not until my psychology of learning class with Dr. Kong. Um, and I remember getting the textbook for the class and thinking, this is going to be the hardest class I've ever taken. And then it ended up being my favorite. And I, I kind of fell in love with it from there. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was my initial exposure to it. I knew nothing of the science. Uh, I didn't know that we had all of these uh, resources in Maryland, like Kennedy Krieger right down the street from UBC. So uh, yeah, that was my initial exposure. Yeah, it's funny how that works, how we kind of, yeah. many people sort of stumble and maybe more to say on that, but before we dive deeper, uh, Tim, would you mind talking a little bit about your background, your current role? Why, what sure. sort of drew your interest to this topic in behavior analysis? Sure. Uh, I started out decades ago at Western Michigan and was taught by Jack Michael, Bruce Hesse, Barb Fulton, people like that who were there at the time and ended up transferring down to the University of Florida and went to graduate school at the University of Florida uh, right at the time when Brian Iwata first moved from Hopkins to the University of Florida. So I was one of his first students and we were doing the, uh, all of the original functional analysis treatment research that his lab worked on. And then I took my first uh, faculty position at LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana State University, and worked primarily in the schools while I was in Baton Rouge. Uh, then I briefly moved up to Pennsylvania and worked at the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Seashore House in the medical school before I came back to the University of Florida in 1998. Uh, we mainly had been um, working, uh, our work in autism and intellectual disabilities was mainly in assessment and treatment of uh, behavior disorders like self-injury and aggression. Uh, but in so doing, we met a lot of families and a lot of uh, individuals and adolescents and young adults around our community just from our, our interest in autism and intellectual disabilities. And many of the families and many of the uh, constituents, uh, individuals with autism um, actually approached us and were asking for 
uh, services for adolescents and, and young adults. And as Ferris said, there really was not anything available um, in, in that regard. And we, we felt there was a very strong need. And at the time of this study, Ferris was uh, a graduate student. He's now a, a doctoral level associate uh, working at our university and our um, Center for Autism and also uh, works with me on uh, school consultation projects. But at the time he was a graduate student and, and he was willing to uh, explore this. And uh, we really had to do some, uh, a lot of examination and self-examination of our methods before we started this project uh, because for the most part, the, the young individuals who were seeking services or their families in some cases um, were not interested in you know, coming to an EIBI type of clinic arrangement for four or six or eight hours a day. Um, they were used to a model uh, similar to what many of their same age peers experienced, which was coming for an appointment of some sort or another, maybe for an hour or two per week. And so in an effort to try to respect that, we developed a, a battery, if you will, of different assessment formats, behaviorally based assessment formats uh, to try to help them uh, with their own concerns. They guided what their concerns were. And as Ferris said, many of them told us their, their, one of their biggest concerns was with friendships and, and how people reacted to them and that sort of thing. So this study was really just one sliver of a much larger um, battery of assessments um, that were kind of guided by their interests. Uh, so already one sort of point of confusion we have heard about this article is that it's kind of limited in its scope. Well, um, we probably did uh, maybe didn't explain that as well as we should have that the scope was much larger. This was one uh, slice of the assessment that was manageable within those very short periods of time when we could see them on a weekly basis. Uh, so uh, that's kind of how we got to where we were with, with this study. Thanks. Yeah, maybe at the end, if possible, we can talk more so about some of the larger picture, some of the interrelated assessments and processes you follow. But before we sort of jump into it, I just out of curiosity to ask you the same question I asked Ferris, which is when you went to WMU, did you have any idea what behavior analysis was or did you kind of wind up in a behavioral program un unbeknownst to you? Well, I, I think I am somewhat of an unusual case where I had a high school psychology teacher who gave us options of different readings uh, that were popular at the time in psychology. And, and one of them was, uh, I believe it was Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And I, I read that and um, really kind of pressed my teacher, where can I learn more about this? And uh, my teacher said, well, here in our state, we have what is considered one of the best behavior, behavioral uh, psychology programs in, in the world. And so I explored Western. And so I kind of knew what it was, but certainly 
Um, not to the extent that my eyes would be opened by people like Jack and, and Bruce Hesse, but um, so they really kind of uh, opened up the, the world of behavior analysis for me at that time. Nice. Yeah, I always love hearing about people's sort of origin stories. I think you know, some people are very intentional about sort of where they study uh, for their undergrad and how they get into it. I myself also an alumni from Western Michigan hadn't the slightest clue, uh, really. I just wanted to study psychology, you know, and happened to, to go to WMU, and, and, and they got me while I was there. So great decision on my part, but I uh, can't claim to have had much foresight on any of that. <laughs> to, to segue into the paper at hand, it, it's focused on the conversational skills, specifically around sensitivity to a conversational partner's interest. And as you were saying, Tim, when, when talking about sort of where this particular project grew from, you're saying it's part of a, a larger a larger assessment and treatment process, but to, to hone in specifically to this particular need, and then again, maybe later we'll, we'll look more broadly at it. What is this, what is the importance of understanding the interest or gauging or, or identifying the interest of a conversational partner? Like, why is this a, a crucial skill to assess and to take on? So the reason we uh, focus on this one for this publication was that it was a common theme among everyone that was coming to us. They were saying, um, I talk to people, I'm trying to talk to people, um, they're ignoring me, they walk away, they don't seem like they care. Uh, and as we kind of got to know these individuals, um, whether in the study or through the program we developed, uh, it was pretty evident that they could not pick up on those subtle cues, um, whether it be affect, um, eye contact, uh, things like most, uh, people will um, kind of learn uh, as they grow older that what I'm saying is or is not interesting to the other person, and I should or should not continue discussing this topic. Um, so it was that was a big reason why they were struggling with their relationships is that um, they they kind of became the kid who just talked about Minecraft. Uh, and we, they, and you know, eventually it's fine when they're like in elementary school, maybe, but as they get a little older, middle school, high school, um, their interests start to increase. Like there are other interests that these kids are going to talk about. They, um, develop various topics of conversation they want to discuss. It, it's not as, um, as one-sided as a favorite video game for example, and I'm going to use Minecraft as an example because that was a, a common one with a lot of our, our participants. Uh, so that's, that's why we wanted to focus on this is that they were losing the opportunity to kind of develop those friendships because they didn't know how to initiate and maintain um, other people's interests, essentially, in what they were saying. And so first learning well, if they're not interested, then what else do I do? I need to change the topic. I need to ask questions. I need to do something else. So that's kind of step one. And that's why uh, we thought this was something that we should focus on for uh, publication. That makes sense. And so 
you had listed a, a few of the sort of common cues that, that people might pick up on in terms of someone losing interest. So the, is, was the purpose of the study then to specifically hone in on that and basically teach or help the clients learn to identify these, these cues or common cues uh, re- reliably? Yeah, I think as Ferris said, this was sort of step one. We, we kind of um, had to uh, step out of it for a moment to ask ourselves, do we really know which component parts of the conversational exchange are uh, causing the, the problem, if you will, for them? And so we thought one part of it could potentially be uh, that they're not picking up on the fact when people are no longer interested. So as we do in very, in almost all of behavior analysis, step one is that assessment process to find out if that's actually the case. And so uh, as Ferris will walk you through the data in a, in a few moments, um, you'll see that in some cases they were in fact, their behavior was insensitive to those sorts of cues, but we didn't know what, at what point they would, their behavior would become sensitive to those cues. And so setting up the assessment was an important first step, as Ferris said. That makes sense. Were there any other assessments that you had looked at or searched for prior to utilizing this method that, that you came up with? Was there anything else out there that informed what you did? Or was there, was there really just not a lot of guidance in this area and the, the published literature? The main ones that I tended to reference and go back and kind of look through their work would be um, Stephanie Hood's work. So I know we cite her paper, her 2017 paper. And then, um, sorry, let me look up. It was, it was uh, Peters and Thompson in 2015. So those two were kind of uh, two, two of a small handful that kind of informed our process. So it, it wasn't necessarily replicating what they did. Um, our work was a little different, but in terms of work on conversation skills and adolescence um, and young adults, that, that's kind of where we looked to help inform what we should do. That makes sense. And I remember from your paper, one of the, one of the potential utilities of your particular approach is the efficiency, is, is the ability yeah. to do it in these sort of time-limited sessions. Can you talk a little bit, and of course we'll get into more and more details as we go, but sort of as a sort of a general overview, can you talk about your particular approach that you ended up following in, in this, this uh, yeah. paper? Yeah, so the main thing uh, we would do is we first, um, give them a rule that we were available to talk and we would give them a, uh, let them choose like an item. They could either bring something from home or choose something from the clinic space we were in. Uh, the reason being, uh, if you're sitting in a room with nothing to do and just like a body there, even if they're not interested, you might just continue to talk. So we wanted to provide some competing item to make it a more naturalistic and be um, to give them the opportunity to do something else, uh, and ensure that if 
they are sensitive to our uninterest, um, would they engage in another response? Um, so we would let them know we were available to talk. Um, they can talk about whatever they want. We didn't dictate topics or anything like that. Um, and so as they, uh, and we also didn't ask questions, which was a big one because we didn't want to, asking questions is a big indicator of interest. If you ask someone a question, you're clearly, you're, you're trying to learn more information. So um, initially during the interested phase, all of our comments were like positive affect. We were smiling, nodding, we were looking at them. Um, so for example, if they say, I, I was, I'm going to the movies later, it's like, oh, that's really cool. I, I love going to the movies. We wouldn't say what movie are you going to? Because again, we, we want the, we want them to respond to our affect and uh, those more subtle behaviors that might suggest interest. Um, asking a question is a little more salient. Uh, and, and so we wouldn't ask the questions and that would just continue until we met our progression criteria. Um, and after that, we would become uninterested and we would just kind of look down at the floor. If they would say anything, we would say, uh, oh, okay. Like our affect was a big factor in what was changing, but also the content of what our responses included. Um, so they were typically one or two words. Oh, nice, interesting, uh, cool, stuff like that. Um, and, and that was it. And then we would just continue until progression criteria was met again. And then we would reverse to the interested condition, um, which at that point we would again say, I am available to talk because we wanted to signal if they had stopped talking during the uninterested condition that um, I was available and we can restart the conversation. Um, and then that would just, we would just conduct a reversal. And for the most part, um, sorry, let me look at how long it took. I think overall in terms of minutes, it was less than 20, less than 30 minutes for all participants to do the entire assessment. Um, and again, this was just one, um, phase of the uh, more comprehensive approach that we were taking and working on some of the skill development that they were seeking. Um, and then based on whether or not they um, were picking up on our interested and uninterested behavior, uh, we would conduct behavioral skills training, kind of model what uh, uninterested behavior looks like, um, have them tact when we were or were not interested, providing feedback, uh, and then essentially doing the assessment again after going through that um, training phase. Yeah, I, and I would add, you know, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, that a, a really um, guiding force, if you will, for us in this approach was the time scope and the time limitation. We, we really wanted to make sure this would that we set up an assessment format that could be followed by other practitioners in a time-limited session. So um, we we didn't, there were things we might have done differently if we had several hours every time we met with the kids or if we met with them every single day of the week or something like that. But we were intentionally trying to set it up within the constraints of what would be a, a unit or a meeting 
um, with an adolescent or a young adult. Um, so that helped frame the approach that we took, we ended up taking. Uh, and to add on to that, um, Tim was saying that we wanted something that can be like replicated in like any clinic. Anyone can sit down with a kid, talk to them and conduct this assessment quickly. Uh, and so that's why we wanted to use these um, within session analyses because the discrete trial approach um, is not going to, you're not going to really see those subtle changes across time, which is really what happens when someone becomes uh, uninterested, like your behavior is going to change um, pr probably kind of slowly. You're going to talk to them and then you're going to pick up on, oh, they're, they don't seem as interested. And eventually that's going to taper off, which is exactly what we saw with a lot of these kids. Um, it, it doesn't go from like 100% to zero. Uh, that's not realistic. That doesn't, that doesn't happen with most people when we're, when we're talking. Um, so what I, what I was hoping we could develop is something where a clinician sits down, although we collected partial interval data, um, you just any type of quick checkbox, this minute they were talking, they were talking, they were talking, um, it, they didn't talk, they didn't talk, and kind of observing that subtle change across time and just, because perhaps eventually they will pick up on it, um, or perhaps they're asking questions and trying to re-engage the other person. Um, and so that that's really what we were hoping to get at is a quick, efficient method to, is this a deficit? If so, we can teach it. If not, move on to the next thing to assess. That makes a lot of sense. And I think in your paper, you had sort of pitched this approach as being something they could like uh, maybe even fit into like a weekly check-in meeting with the client, like something that is just like you get your one-on-one -on -one meeting with the client. You can you can do this in a really efficient, ideally effective manner to, uh, to sort of identify where they're at with these skills and and inform obviously where you go with treatment. There's a lot to unpack. Thank you for sort of providing that overview, and we'll sort of go through piece by piece here. I think maybe starting with the the participants would be interesting because because. I'm picking up that this is sort of a very specific type of subgroup of of individuals with with autism spectrum disorder in the sense that they they seem to have at least some types of advanced communication skills. So could you talk about the the particular type of participants that that were involved with this study and and what type of skills they had kind of coming into it? Yeah. Um, so they were all uh, I what we call, I guess, high functioning autism. They were very independent. Um, so they're ranging from six to 18 years. They're all in, in, for the most part, inclusive settings in schools. They can effectively communicate using complete sentences. Um, no one needed uh, any type of support with communication in terms of like, uh, visuals or anything like that. They were all very um, independent when it came to communicating wants, needs, um, interests, things like that. All using spoken language, I'm assuming. That's Correct. What yeah. Means. yeah. And you said that they pretty much all of them were, were sort of in inclusive classrooms. 
what type of services then were were they participating or receiving for the study? Do you, was it like an outpatient clinic arrangement or, or what did that look like? Or was it, were they just coming in for the study? We have, and at the time of this study, had a clinic on campus uh, called the Behavior Analysis Research Clinic. And it was in our psychology building right around the corner from our offices, that sort of thing. And um, families, or if the individual could drive, uh, could there were spots they could park right down at the base of the building and, and they could come up. And so um, Ferris just put out word that we were going to do this study um, as sort of a, uh, a proof of concept, if you will, to see if, uh, if this type of uh, weekly appointment model related to uh, social and communication skills would be viable. And almost immediately, um, th there were individuals and families that explored this option right away. And uh, if I remember correctly, and Ferris can correct me if I'm wrong, um, this was prior to uh, uh, us having any kind of um, paid therapeutic service delivery. So it, it, he was just doing this as part of the study and they were participating as uh, with the recognition that we were trying to develop this approach as we went, as we worked with them. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's helpful. And, and sort of speaks to the different ways that people might do studies. A lot of people that come on the show, maybe they're already providing services to the people who end up participating. In your case, it's sort of bringing in people specifically for the study. And that, that clinic sounds like it was a, a great resource that you were able to provide. The main reason why we're struggling to set this up within a typical clinic model is um, reimbursement is extremely difficult given their, some of them, their age, um, and some of them, the, uh, lack of severity in typical, uh, quote unquote prom behavior. It's not aggression or self-injury, but these kids are struggling to make friends. Like it does impact their life greatly, but, um, from the standpoint of typical insurance providers, it's not severe. So that's something we need to kind of work, uh, in changing that approach. And yeah. Yeah, that that's really helpful context to know. And uh, I think I think we could have a whole episode, if not series of episodes on on yeah. sort of uh, billing practices and, and, and what is billing? Uh, what can I'm you sure, bill for? Sorry, I'm sure plenty of listeners will say like, oh, we'd love to do this, but we're not going to get reimbursed. And I, I, I do understand that because uh, that is something we have learned is very, very difficult working with this population. Right. Yeah. Well, and perhaps we'll, we'll circle back to that. I would love to take us off the off the rails and to talk a lot about that. But I, I do want to get us sort of through the important pieces of the study. So you, you're bringing in these folks who are maybe receiving services elsewhere in a school. They're interested in, in hopefully getting help in this skill. They're coming to the university clinic. Can you talk about you sort of talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but can you describe what that session looked like? So they come in the door, obviously we'll sort of skip the whole consent, consent and 
mm-hmm. getting them started, but the actual sort of you know, whatever baseline or, or treatment phases, what did that look like? So uh, as when they come in, it's kind of just um, a how's it going few moments. Uh, one individual in particular uh, liked to catch me up on how his week at school's been, things that have been going on. Um, the one thing that I was very sensitive about was that if they came in and they were upset about something at school, which quite honestly happened often. Um, that's what we talked about. And they just kind of unloaded and no, we didn't really do any um, typical behavior therapy during that moment. But I also wasn't going to um, impose these sessions when they weren't in the right headspace for it. So they treated it almost as a, um, a, a talk session, which that is not what I do, but I, uh, uh, so if that's the case, we of course try to, um, collaborate with other professionals in the community who do that make sure that these individuals have those people to speak to if they needed them. So, um, they would come in, they, we'd kind of just catch up for a little bit and let them know what we'd be doing for that day. Um, and we'd kind of just get started and, they were always free to like stop and start whenever they wanted. Um, I made sure that was very clear early on. So um, sometimes they're like, you know what? I, I don't have it in me to stay the whole hour. I can only do 30 minutes. I'm like, that's fine. Like what, this is your time. It's uh, I, I want it to be beneficial for you. And if staying for an hour is going to make it aversive, then we're not doing that. Uh, and so um, it was very fluid Uh, You know, the sessions themselves are structured, but the time around that, it's uh, I considered it their time. And so we we took it at their pace. Yeah. Yeah, And I'll interject something that Ferris won't say because uh, he's not one to um, toot his own horn, but he's uh, he may not have planned it as this, but clearly what he did was made coming to the clinic reinforcing for the the kids. Um, These these individuals liked coming to visit Ferris. They would ask their parents if they could go. They wouldn't miss appointments. I can tell you that we did this, what, five, six years ago? Yeah. Many of these individuals still come to see Ferris. And (laughs) so they may start out with some chit chat and how are things going at school, but he's, he's essentially established himself as a, as a reinforcing social contact. And that has allowed him to assist them in a number of different ways, ranging from academic success to pursuing their hobbies and interests, pursuing friendships and dating things that happened outside of this study. So it was crucial that he didn't just, have them come in the door and start an assessment with um, the project. He did it just as a matter of course, because that's his personality. But as someone observing the situation and being familiar with what was happening, I accepted that as Ferris is being established as a reinforcer here. And that's crucial for his role in implementing this type of assessment. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it it also sounds consistent with sort of compassionate care and, and behavior analysis in the sense that like, you know, I'm not as a therapist, I'm not rigid robots. Like, no, I'm a human. Let's connect like anyone, you know, you're going through a grocery store line, you're connecting with 
the, the, the grocer, right? Like let's, let's just connect on, on, a, on a human level. And then of course, you know, we'll do our, our treatment or therapy or assessment, whatever that might be, but just having those, those connections, I think is, is really important. And, and something I think more and more people are, are sort of recognizing in, in behavior analytic treatment. Um, so you, they come in, you sort of catch up, you start the session. You, I think earlier you had said, that sort of kicks off with you saying that you're available if you're in that, if you're in that sort of phase there. And so you alternated between sort of two conditions, the, the interested and the uninterested. Could you talk about, again, you somewhat described this, but can you talk about what those look like and like how long they ran for? Mm -hmm. And then like um, when you switched over? Yeah. So the interested, uh, I would just give them that kind of general statement like, all right, we're going to start now. Feel free to talk about whatever you want to talk. You can stop if you want. Um, and I would just kind of let them go from there. Um, and so a lot of smiling, nodding, um, like you are having coffee with your best friend and just like having a good time. Like that is what we were trying to replicate. Um, and so, you know, the types of things that they're going to encounter at school, they're sitting at the cafeteria table, uh, their friends are laughing, they're reciprocating. That's what we wanted. Um, after, uh, at least three minutes elapsed and responding was stable, uh, we would progress to the next condition. So we'd be uninterested. And so at that point, um, we had the third and fourth, uh, or I'm sorry, the second and third and fourth author. So Melanie and Garrett were two RAs uh, who helped a lot on this project and with a lot of the work we did in this area. So they would be collecting data simultaneously uh, while I was a therapist and we would kind of rotate through. So it wasn't just the same person. Um, and they would signal to me at what point I was to become uninterested by kind of just like a finger or like we had a little system, a subtle system in place. And I would then kind of look down. I'd, uh, my affect was very flat, monotone. So any statements they made were simply, okay, oh, that's cool. Like very boring. I, I sounded boring. Like I, I meant to sound boring. Um, and then again, after that, uh, after they met the criteria we'd established, so responding either drops off um, and so they're essentially not talking to us, uh, when we're not talking to the therapist, uh, because they've identified them as uninterested, um, or they continue talking. And so su suggesting they're insensitive. So if they were insensitive, uh, we would either way, we would revert back to the interested condition just to demonstrate experimental control. Um, and we did that until it was time to progress to the behavioral skills training phase. With the, with the alternation between the two conditions within that pro progression criteria, what was the, what was the, the responding that you were waiting to see stabilized? Was that, that was the amount of, uh, or the intervals with vocalizations, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So they were 10 second partial interval. So if they made any statement, it would be scored. And so that would, we established the criteria 
in the in our protocol. So if they met X criteria, um, we would either continue like progress to the next condition, or if they hadn't, we just continue until um, responding stopped. That makes sense. Were you at all interested in, or did you even see in the uninterested condition in particular after the training piece, but any like indication, like other than, than the stopping talking, any indication of like, maybe a sort of a, Hey, like, you know, uh, maybe we can talk next time or, so, or some sort of like language or communication around like, Oh, you're, uh, you're, you're preoccupied or you're no longer interested any like tacting of that no not in the not in these sessions i did <laughs> i did hear from some of the parents after like the study was over uh we kind of moved on to other things they mentioned that they did one individual in particular um th this this boy would uh tact exactly that so if his mom was reading a book um, and he was talking to say, oh, you're reading a book. I guess uh, you might not be interested right now. Things like that. Um, I didn't see it in the sessions, but it, it sounds like it did occur outside of that for at least uh, one of the individuals. Um, but also they, they knew why they were there. Um, they were aware that they were struggling with certain social skills and they were trying to improve them. So uh, we never saw any um any animosity or any anger toward um being like ignored for example like they never it was either they were responding um because they were unaware that we were uninterested or they picked up on it after we taught them um, or for two of the participants they already had it in the repertoire um and would stop talking Gotcha. So once you had sort of established a baseline, as you had mentioned, two of them seemed to demonstrate the skill. So they were sort of pulled aside with the, with the four that didn't have the skill you used BST train or behavioral skills training specifically on this skill. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? Like what, what skill in particular you were focusing on? Yeah. So uh, for behavioral skills training, we talked about why it was important. Uh, we kind of just reiterated uh, general rules. Like, here's why this is really important. Um, here's what it might look like. And then we would kind of model the behavior. So uh, I would use uh, Melanie and Garrett and myself, we kind of alternate um, like two people modeling the behavior, a speaker and a listener, and then the third person kind of pointing out, look, they're now looking at the ground, their affect changed. And so, and then they like, if the participant had any questions, we would answer them, um, which I don't believe happened. Um, but after we showed them the differences, we again had uh, uh, the speaker and listener essentially um, engage in interested or uninterested behavior. And then the other person, so myself, for example, would ask, okay, so was Garrett interested or uninterested in what Melanie was saying. And then we kind of do that until they mastered it. And then at that point, we would move on to the post-training. With the participants, was the BST 
sort of within one session or, or, or how many sessions would it typically consist of for the, for the various participants? You don't have to know the date off the top of your head. I didn't see it, it in the paper, but do you have a, a general idea? Yeah, it was uh, during one appointment, um, and but it, the time range between like 15 and 45 minutes, um, depending on how quickly they uh, kind of mastered uh, tacting the differences and identifying when the person was or was not interested. And displaying the, the response, responding to the differences. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, extremely efficient intervention then, right? If it's really taking place across one session, yes. um, which is, which is great. In, in terms of the design you use to evaluate the data, we sort of talked about the sort of the alternation between the conditions, but then it looks like you had like a, a multiple baseline sort of on top of those alternations. Can you talk about why that design was used here, why, why that was like a, a useful design for, for approaching a skill like this. Yeah, um, it was just kind of an extra layer of experimental control. The reversals really, what I, I think demonstrates um, they had learned the behavior if they had not uh, had it in the repertoire prior to the teaching. Um, you'll notice some of the um, phases in baseline are a little longer than others. So I didn't we had like an AB baseline for Damien. Um, that was my fault. That was just an error on my my part. Uh, I should have reversed to uh, the interested condition. Um, so aside from that, it was generally, we, we just thought it was the best way to demonstrate um, experimental control quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and I, I love the sort of superimposing of the multiple baseline and the reversal, right? Reversal, as you said, in and of itself can be an extremely effective design, but to have that extra added layer really makes these, these data compelling, I think. The frequent listeners of BAPCAST will always will be used to me sort of talking about, you know, my love for graphs and for tables. And so... <laughs> Uh, I do recommend the listeners download the the paper, if only to look at the graphs to sort of see what the data look like themselves. I, I think they're really, really uh, interesting data. Can you walk us through what the overall results and and sort of takeaways from from this study were? Sure. So of the six participants, um, four of them were not sensitive to indices of uninterest. Um, uh, so at least the indices that we we uh, measured. So Damien, Kalam, Leo, and James um, all required behavioral skills training to really learn when someone was uninterested and when they were interested, like really understanding the differences in what those behaviors look like. Um, but really quickly um, acquired the skill and demonstrated an under like. They, they learned how to differentiate based on the responding in the post-BST phase. Um, so we'd see like high rates of responding during the interested conditions and low to zero rates during the uninterested, during post-training. So that, that's really what we were looking for is those differences. Um, Oscar and Lenny 
they both um, actually, their data suggests that they were sensitive to indices of an interest. Um, and that's okay, because that was just one part of a comprehensive uh, list of programs that we were doing with them. So it, we were working on other things like asking questions with Oscar in other sessions. And for Lenny, um, how to approach students in his school and kind of just ask if he can join games. But we still wanted to at least conduct this to show we can rule it out as something that may or may not be contributing to the um, overall dissatisfaction with their uh, social uh, repertoire. That's helpful clarification and I think highlights one of the extremely important components of an assessment, which is in many cases to rule out variables, right? Rule in, but also rule out variables. And so, you know, your, your data are certainly promising along those lines. As you have both said, you know, the, the purpose of this study in many ways was to be a proof of concept. Would this approach generally work? It's, you know, you're not claiming that it is the, you know, ultra conclusive in terms of this is the absolute best approach. But certainly your data seem to indicate very, very promising leads along those lines. Can you talk about some of the potential future directions within this particular line of research? You had sort of listed a few limitations of the study in the paper. Where would folks who are interested in, in this topic, and then uh, after this question, we'll zoom out and, and talk more so broadly about the comprehensive uh, components as well, but for this particular topic, people interested in this area, what should they be thinking about? Are, are there other resources or questions or things that, that they should be considering? Uh, I think one major one is our, our indices of uninterest were like a small sliver of what people might do. Uh, someone might pull out their phone. Um, they might slowly start walking backwards away from you. They they might tell you to stop talking. So uh, there's a lot of things that um, could suggest uninterest, uh, but I think that um, the reason we chose these is that they, they they were, I thought they were the most subtle uh, and they're ones that we commonly will encounter in our everyday life. So um, I, I think that's, one reason why those were selected. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that um, those, those behaviors that we chose to target. The other thing is that, um, you know, a lot of these kids, they're in school. Um, it's not just one person talking to them. It's going to be a whole bunch of kids. It's going to be adults, teachers, other students. Um, so trying to do this in a more naturalistic setting would be really, really important to ensure that like what we did at in the clinic is gonna generalize to say at the school. And so um, one part of the, our, our approach, or at, le at least uh, my approach was, I would go to the schools uh, for all of these individuals. And um, I kind of just collaborate with the teachers and try to figure out a time where I can go observe. And I would like just sit on the playground with the other teachers and kind of watch what was happening uh, within earshot. So I can kind of see if what was practiced, um, whether it was this study, like the indices of uninterest, um, some of the other skills we've developed, like asking questions, approaching groups of kids, um, were actually being implemented. So 
making sure that um, whatever you're doing inside in the clinic or outside the clinic is actually beneficial to the individual is something I think would I would highlight. Another thing we've talked about that would be a really uh, important next step is to, um, to teach recognition of something that the other person might be interested in. So we've talked a lot about, you know, if somebody's wearing a judo t-shirt that maybe, oh, do you take judo lessons or do you, do you like judo? Or if it's a football or basketball shirt or, or a hat that they're wearing, that there are cues related to someone's environment. Maybe it's something hanging on their wall that uh, might lead the conversationalist to um, bring up a particular topic when they see that their topic is kind of wearing out and uh, uh, wearing out the interest level of the listener. Um, so we've kicked around those ideas as well. That makes sense because as we were saying, this being sort of a component skill at the first component is sort of recognizing when, when you're losing your audience, but then as you're saying, like, how can, how can we potentially increase, uh, or prolong our interactions and that might be, you know, bringing the, the person we're interacting with more so into the conversation, asking them questions, commenting on the things that are uh, potentially going to be of interest to them. And, you know, one of the things I think all those future directions are really fascinating. And Ferris, as you were talking about what this looks like in school, one of the areas that sort of just popped into my head, which I think would be interesting, would be interacting with more than one conversation partner at a time, right? Because I'm thinking about when you said kids in school, you know, I'm picturing someone walking up to three or four kids yeah. and, and sort of gauging that crowd almost of, of when do you lose a, a you know, small group of kids as opposed to an individual partner, I think would be an interesting area as well. I think I, obviously so many different little corners to sort of check out in this topic because it is so new and, uh, it's so interesting. So, so thank you all for sort of kickstarting in this. Uh, you know, I don't, we don't have a, a lot of time, but any sort of other papers or resources or, or anything that the listeners could check out related to the comprehensive package we've been talking about, we're talking about this as being like a component skill. Are you guys doing other work that is out there on sort of this, this more comprehensive approach related to some of these skills? One of the things that uh, we've been looking at is uh, conversational preferences. Uh, so it's pretty clear that all of us have hierarchies and they may fluctuate from day to day or week to week, but generally speaking, we have certain things we like to talk about, uh, whether it's um, the football game from the weekend or a book we're reading or a television show that we watch. Uh, if we have conversational partners who also enjoy those topics, we tend to seek them out when we're speaking on those particular topics. So uh, Ferris and another one of our colleagues, Sam Morris, who's now at uh, Louisiana State, um, have, have uh, constructed a paper where they're actually examining these conversational preferences and looking across different assessment formats to see how 
how well or how consistently those uh, preferences are manifested. And, and Ferris and I have been kicking around a, a different ideas for how that might interact in sort of a group dynamic, like, like you were just mentioning. Um, so for example, if you simulated a, a party atmosphere or, you know, small group activity and certain corners of the room were where the video game was being discussed. Another corner was where a popular movie was being discussed and just kind of gauging movement through the room and interaction in those more naturalistic styles. So I think that general area of conversational topic recognition and preference is an area we've moved into. That sounds awesome. That that work that your two colleagues are are working on is that currently available, or is that something that's in the pipeline? Uh, I, I believe we just submitted it for publication yesterday, yep. <laughs> so it'll go under review. Um, but um, yeah, hopefully that will be out and available. Also, during the pandemic, one of our colleagues, Katie Kishel, Catherine Kishel, um, replicated this approach that Ferris uh, developed uh, using an online format. Uh, we had a lot of uh, adolescents and young adults who either could not come in for behavior analytic services due to the pandemic um, or, and or travel restrictions such as they lived in rural communities. Um, and so she was able to replicate that uh, approach on the um, using a Zoom format. And that is in press in a special issue um, of behavioral uh, behavior modification. Um, so that should be coming out soon, I think by the end of the year or so. Awesome. Well, we'll link to whatever articles are available at the time that the, that the show comes out. Anything else the listeners sort of you know, keep in mind and keep your eye out for more, more on those later, I'm sure. And I'm looking at the clock. I'm seeing we're, we're low on time. I want to be mindful of not losing my audience or my conversation partners here. And so <laughs> with that, I'll just thank you both so much for, for your work in this paper. And then of course, coming on the show today to talk about it. Sure. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>